Hey guys, how's it going? Welcome. Happy Sunday. Um, I know it's late. Well, it's three hours late. What a night. Um, I, I wasn't sure if I was going to watch the football game or not, but then I really got into it. It was a really close football game. I'm not into uh, uh, football or anything like that. I know, you know, I understand it because of high school and all that, but other than that. But anyway, so I decided to watch the football game, so I pushed the show forward to a 30 p.m. Pacific, and um, that was all fine and dandy. came in here. That got ready to set everything up, and then the computer decided it was going to accept the download of, of Windows 11, and uh, I'd been putting it off for a while, so when I started doing it, I couldn't stop it. So then that that was a nice 45-minute wait, and then once I got into that, there was the, I had to re-sign into my Microsoft account, and I still couldn't I couldn't get signed into it, no matter what I tried to do. Don't know. Don't know what the issue was. So I finally pushed a restart on the computer, and here I am. It's just as I haven't verified my account. So whatever, we'll just go with the flow on that. When I have friends that are computer techs that can look at this thing and figure out what the hell is going on. Anyway, welcome. Happy Sunday. This is day 11 of reading about the Salem Witch Trials. And uh, I know some of you probably aren't up or you won't be watching because obviously I was supposed to go out hours and hours earlier. So I'm just going to do my best, read the book. And um, yeah, I'm hope <laughs> so hopefully somebody's listening out there. But uh, yeah, Microsoft pulled a fast one on me tonight. All right, so we're going to continue with this book, and uh, I guess from what I remember from the last time we read, which was last Sunday, they had arrested more innocent people and brought them in to be testified as witches, and I believe one or two have died already in prison or in the jails. So, um, yeah, so that's where we're at pretty much. Let me get the tablet powered up, and uh, we'll get on with this tonight, barring Microsoft killing me off my computer or anything like that. I just feel bad because there were people on Meetup that were waiting to come in and watch the show and uh, my, my my normal people that I send stuff to, and I didn't get a chance. Hang on a second with my audio here. Hang on. Hello. Oh, weird. Hang on, you guys. I'm trying to figure out my audio. Hang on. Let's see. It's not telling me what I'm connected to. What the hell? What is this? John Hawthorne assists Jonathan Corwin and the Nassau Tribe. On May 14, 1692, what is this? Sailed into Harbor. Okay, I don't know what this is. Just hey, I have no idea what's going on. Hang on, you guys. I'm going to see what system I'm on here. Okay, here. Okay. Let me get the audio going. Okay. All right. See, I, this is all new. I just, like I said, uh, Microsoft uh, Windows 11 just came up on my laptop <clears throat> after it uploaded. So I have no clue what the hell I'm doing here. And then all the, everything looks so much different here. I'm just trying to make sure I got everything set up right. Okay, there's that. There's that. Okay. So for those of you just coming in, <clears throat> excuse me, for those of you just coming in, I went to come on. I, I pushed the show out to 8:30 because I was watching. I got someone in the football game, and then when I came in at 8:30, Microsoft decided to put Windows 11 on my laptop. So I was sitting here for like 45 minutes waiting for it to kick in. Once it kicked in, then I couldn't sign on. It wouldn't let me into my account. So I went through this big shabrol with that. Finally, re did a reboot on the computer. Got in. Here I am. Right, but I'm still finding out that you know everything looks like it's different on my desktop now, like like even just now, adjusting the sound and everything. That's why there's errors in the front of the show. Anyway, I hope you guys can hear me. If you can hear me, somebody tell me you can hear me all right. Um, 
Wow, what a night. I almost didn't come back on. All right, so we're going to read. And from what I remember um, of the Salem Witch Trials, a couple of uh, the accused witches had died while in custody. And uh, some are sick at this point. And they just arrested a bunch more, a, bu a bunch more people for this. Okay, so let me get this started now that I figured out the sound thing. And I'm going to have to sit here and play with the computer all day tomorrow and figure out what the heck's going on here and everything. It took me forever to find my C drive to see how much memory I had on my C drive. I mean, everything has changed. It's like they can't find an operating system and then leave it alone. It used to be they took the best of all the other systems and combined them. Now it's like nuts. It's craziness. Could have been worse, I guess. We have a busy schedule. That's okay. We have a busy schedule this week. We got we got full uh, guests all week, and it's going to be real busy tomorrow. I'm taping one show, and then we're doing a live at 11 a.m. Okay, so I'll be on here for about an hour. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, based out of Sacramento, California. We're 45 strong up and down the state of California, and that means if you have a paranormal need. Get a hold of us. It may take us a while to get to you. California is a huge state, okay? But we will get to you and help you one way or another, whether it's remotely, you know, utilizing one of our psychic team, or if it's, it's somebody from our team physically going, we will go and help you. We will do our best to help you. Okay, if you're watching from Facebook tonight and you like what you hear, because we do this every Sunday, um, I, I, I read from a paranormal-themed book every Sunday. If you like that and you haven't done so already, hit that like button and follow because that'll alert you to when we when, when the new videos are coming up. If you're watching from YouTube, okay, here we go. Right there is that little ghost with the uh, with the magnifying glass and the Sherlock Holmes hat on, and that's our mascot. You click on that little ghost, and uh, the subscribe button will come up, and that'll subscribe you to our YouTube channel. We've got over 500 videos sitting over there, and they're all different topics. Uh, you know, you're not just going to find paranormal topics. They're this run the gamut. So I'm sure there's something in there that you will find that you like. And again, if you're watching from YouTube, please be sure to hit that like button. I'm also available on Instagram under the name of Ghosty Gal. That's all lowercase. I'm over at TikTok under California Haunts, and that is all lowercase as well. And you can also find us on Twitter under Cal Haunts. So we're everywhere. You can find us, Facebook, you name it. There's California Haunts, Ghostly Events. Anything with California Haunts attached, that's me. Okay? I've been busy. All right. Well, let's get into reading this book. And the book is um, The History and Haunting of Salem, The Witch Trials, and Beyond. So here we are. We are officially in the examination of uh, examination of Martha Carrier. And as it says in my description for this, I'm going to warn you guys ahead of time. This is written in old English. Oh, I'm talking O-L-D-E English. Okay. So some of the words <laughs> don't, you know, don't come out right. So I'm just letting you know. So you can do a good laugh about it or whatever you want to do. But that's the way it is. In fact, when I run into one, sometimes I'll read it off to you to let you know just that, that the struggle is real with this stuff. Okay. All right, so here we go. May 31st, 1692. And it just went that way. How dare you? It just moved on me, so I'm trying to figure out where it went. Great. It just moved on me. There we go. Okay. My tablet's old, too, like everything else. Okay, so I'll be reading for about an hour. So here we go. Examination of Martha Carrier, May 31st, 1692. H. Okay, now H would be the... I can't remember the guy's name. Hawthorne. I think his last name is Hawthorne. So H. Abigail Williams, who hurt you? W. Which be Abigail. Goody Carrier of Andover. H. Elizabeth Hubbard, who hurt you? Elizabeth. Goody Carrier. 
age. Susan Sheldon, who hurts you? Susan Sheldon, pretty carrier. She bites me, pinches me, and tells me she would cut my throat if I did not sign her book. Uh, here's a note here with a asterisk. Mary Walcott said she afflicted her and brought her and brought the book to her. Age. What do you say to this? You're charged with? C. I have not done it. Uh, now we have another asterisk with a whoa, with a S-U-S. Sheldon cried. She I believe it, was Susan, it might be Susan Sheldon. Sheldon cried. She looks upon the black man, and Putman complained of a pin stuck in her. H. What black man is that? C. I know none. And and Putman testified there was. Mary Warren cried out. She she was pricked. H. What black man did you see? C. I saw no black man but your own presence. H. Can you look upon these and not knock them down? C. They will de de they will dissemble if I look upon them. H. You see, you look upon them and they fell and they fall down. C. It is false. The devil is a liar. I looked upon none since I came into the room, but you. Susan. Susan Sheldon cried out in a trance. I wondered what could I wonder what could you murder 13, 13 persons? Mary Walcott testified the same that there lay thirteen ghosts. All all the afflicted fell into the most into, intolerable outcries and agonies. Elizabeth Hubbard and Ann Putnam testified the same that that that, that she'd killed thirteen at Andover. H. It is a shameful thing that you should mind these folks that are out of their wits. Do you not see them? C. If I do speak, you will not believe me. H. You do see them, said the accusers. C. You lie. I am wronged. Note. There is, there is the black man whispering in her ear, said many of the afflicted. Mercy Lewis, in a violent fit, was well upon the examinants, grasping her arm. The tortures of the afflicted was so great that there was no enduring of it so that she was ordered away to be bound hand and foot with all ex with all expedition the afflicted in the mean while almost killed to the great trouble of all spectators magistrates and others note as soon as she was well bound they all had a strange and sudden ease note mary walcott told the magistrates that this woman told her she had been a witch this 40 years martha carrier was bound hand and foot and taken from the room as soon as she was without the meeting without the meeting house walls the afflicted recovered although moments before they had been almost killed according to witnesses william wilmot reed the simple wife of a fisherman was from marblehead she was rough around the edges with a reputation for a salty disposition and a dislike of her neighbor's children her indictment was interesting the complaint against her on may 31st 1892 listed See, this doesn't make sense. It's, I think it's 1692. Listed Elizabeth Booth as the victim she was accused. Hang on one second. Let me look at this. I got to go back a second because, see, this doesn't make sense. And sometimes, yeah, see, 1892 is a complaint. That's what I want to make sure. All right, where am I at? Okay. Um, on May 31st, 1692, this is 1892, listed Elizabeth Booth as the victim she was accused of tormenting. Yet the complaint put forth during her official trial in September lists Elizabeth Hubbard, not Booth, as a tormented girl. During the May examination, the tormented, including John Indian, thrashed about and were finally brought to Reed for the touch test. 
Reed maintained her innocence, stating she felt the afflicted were in a sad condition, but she had nothing to do with it. She was held over and led from the courtroom. William Proctor, son of John and Elizabeth Proctor, both sitting in Boston prison on the charges of witchcraft, were treated with harsher were treated with a harsher prosecution than his fellow accused. His examination is lost, but the complaint against him was for tormenting Elizabeth Hubbard and Mary Warren. He declared his innocence and was sent to Salem jail where he was bound, neck to heel, a very painful torture. The victim was seated on the floor and bent in half, his head over his knees. A rope was tied about his neck and pulled to within inches of his feet, where it was secured around his ankles. Proctor was sentenced to 24 hours of this torture until he confessed to witchcraft. After many hours, blood gushed from his nose, and he was untied by some unnamed person. All those questioned that day were assigned to Boston prison. The official court trials of Oyer and, and, and Terminer would begin in a few days. The magistrates took advantage of those present and asked Mrs. Ann Putnam Sr. To fill, out a, to fill out a deposition against Rebecca Nurse for the many times the specter of the elderly woman came into her home and attacked her. The magistrates read her words back to her so that she could swear to their accurate recording. Suddenly, the specter of Rebecca Nurse came shrieking at her through the courtroom. Before the astonished eyes of the spectators, it tackled Ann Sr. to the floor. Ann Putnam Jr. jumped up and yelled it was Rebecca Nurse's specter attacking her mother. Sarah Cloyce and Martha Corey specters were hurting her as well. The court adjourned, and the magistrates headed up the hill to Ingersoll's, where they had refreshments and gathered their horses for their ride back to Salem. Once home, Attorney General Thomas Newton wrote a report to Secretary Isaac Addington, giving him a brief overview of the day's occurrences and commenting that the accused witches seemed to be among the poor, the rich, the military, and even the clergy. It was astonishing. Enclosed with the report was a list of the first prisoners to be tried in the court of Oyer of Terminer. He requested that John Elizabeth Proctor, Alice Parker, Rebecca Nurse, Susanna Martin, Bridget Bishop, John Willard, Tatuba, and Sarah Good be brought from Boston prison to Salem Town. Little Dorcas remained behind in prison. Tatuba and the maid of Mrs. Thatcher were asked to be kept sep separated from the others as they were confessed witches. It is probable that Mrs. Thatcher's maid mentioned in the documents was Mercy Short, who had confessed to witchcraft. She was no doubt relieved to be kept away from Sarah Good, as she had once thrown wood shavings in Good's face when Sarah asked her for some tobacco, while she sat in the Boston prison. Mercy had accused her mistress of witchcraft and confessed of it herself, as yet no charges were brought against Mrs. Thatcher. In Boston, Cotton Mather once again warned about using spectral evidence to condemn people to death. He was also against torture to get a confession. He went so far as to advocate a lighter sentence than hanging as it was, short of a confession, hard to truly establish one's guilt in the field of magic. Could they not look at the cases individually and take into account re repentance and degree of perceived malice? He realized this was contrary to the one-size-fits-all legislature passed one-size-fits-all legislature passed from England's courts. But his dealings with Mercy Short and the Goodwin children had given him an insight that others might not have. His humane approach was not adopted, and within one week, the first witch would hang. Chapter 27, The First to Hang As preparations were made for the opening of the witch trials, the spectral attacks against the afflicted ramped up. Philip English's shape stuck a pin into Mary Warren's hand, 
George Burroughs' specter had come after all who had testified against him. Martha Carrier and Bridget Bishop's ghosts were kept busy, and Rebecca nursed, ter ter nursed terrified Ann Putnam Sr. with a nightly visit filled with corpses. Ann Putnam Sr. awoke to find the specter of Rebecca Nurse threatening to murder her. Nurse had brought along with her, her the ghosts of Ann's dead sister, Mary Bailey, and three of her deceased children, all shrouded in their burial clothes and floating before her. If that image weren't horrifying enough, the dead offspring of her other sister, Sarah Carr Baker, also clad in winding sheets, stared at Putnam, all claiming Rebecca Nurse, Elizabeth Carey, and an unnamed deaf woman at Boston, possibly Margaret Thatcher, had murdered them. Anne claimed the specter of Rebecca Nurse told me that she was come that she was come out of prison. She had power to affect me. Anne was not finished. She made up for the time she had been quiet in the former months. On the very morning the trials were to begin, her bedchamber was also visited by the ghosts of Samuel Fuller and Lydia Wilkins. They told her they would tear me to pieces if she didn't tell the magistrates that John Willard had murdered them. To emphasize their demand, their ghosts threatened to appear in court if Hawthorne didn't, didn't believe her. At this point, the specter of John Willard floated into her room and declared with pride that he had indeed murdered them and her own children, along with children of her neighbors. He claimed William Hobbs had helped him. The court would convene on June 2nd, 1692, and it was obvious to, it was obvious the afflicted wanted to get in as many accusations against attacking specters as possible. The magistrates visited the confessors in jail to get the last of their information they could before the trials began. Mary English, the imprisoned wife of Philip English, took the opportunity to inform the magistrates that a month earlier, while in Salem town, she had heard Mary Warren confess that she and the other afflicted girls were so distracted and distempered that they did not know what they said in their fits. Her words were ignored either because the magistrates were hell-bent on their, on their current course of action, or the words of an, of an accursed witch could not be believed. Besides, Mary Warren swung back and forth in her confessions as fast as a frenetic pendulum. On May 30th, William Stoughton and Samuel Sewell called for the appointment of 18 honest and lawful men for the grand jury, and 40 more in case multiple cases had to be heard at one time, or other jurors fell away. It was probably not lost to those called that they would be incurring the wrath of the witches, which they sat in judgment. A vast portion of the area countryside was represented, as the jurors came from Topsfield, Ipswich, Boxford, Beverly, and Wenham. The foreman called was Thomas Fisk from Wenham. The court of lawyer and terminer convenes. No records remain from the actual trials that began on June 2nd, 1692. Cotton Mather <clears throat> wrote that there was little occasion to, pr to, prove the to prove the witchcraft, this being evident and notorious to all beholders. Obviously, the afflicted's torments and the, and the written depositions would suffice as evidence. The earlier examinations would, sadly, be the foundation for the trials. The jury would hear the depositions and notes from the examinations. They would witness the obvious suffering of the girls as they screamed and tumbled about the floor. If the prisoners hoped for a second chance at redemption, it was a fool's dream granted only to a few. Some business was conducted earlier that morning before the trials began. John Hawthorne and Jonathan Corwin, after a three-day delay, wrote out arrest warrants for Elizabeth Fosdick and Elizabeth Payne. At 10 o'clock, further degradation was heaped upon those who were, who were to, second trial, to stand trial. 
Nine women and Surgeon John Barton were sent to search the bodies of Rebecca Nurse, Alice Parker, Sarah Good, Elizabeth Proctor, and Susanna Martin for signs of witches' teeth. They testified that Bridget Bishop, Elizabeth Proctor, and Rebecca Nurse each had an odd excrescence of flesh found in the anal area. Rebecca Nurse explained it was due to a painful and prolonged child labor. It was probably a, probably a hemorrhoid, often a result of pushing during labor. One of the midwives said she saw nothing abnormal. Bridget Bishop's examination was more detailed. Her body was thoroughly searched just before her trial and after. The midwives stuck pins into any mark that looked suspicious. They found a witch's teeth between the pupendum and anus, just before she was taken before the magistrates. Three hours later, obviously after her lengthy trial, they once again searched the area and found the teeth had withered, leaving behind a patch of dry skin. They took this to mean Bridget's familiar had been suckling there and drained it. They put their findings in writing. That the area had been previously pricked with a pin would cause it to wither but the natural explanation was not offered. As mentioned earlier, if a suspicious mole or other skin abnormality was, was pricked with a pin and bled, then it was deemed natural skin occurrence. If, however, it was pricked and no blood came out, it was considered a witch's mark. The trials were held in Salem Townhouse on the second floor, only a block from the jail. Chief Justice William Stoughton presided, Samuel Sewell, John Hawthorne, Bartholomew Denny, John Richards, and Nathaniel Saltonstall sat at the bench. The ubiquitous Jonathan Corwin was not presiding this time, but his services would soon be required. British Bishop, um, Bridget Bishop. The guards entered Salem Jail and clasped Bridget Bishop by the arms. They bowed her wrists and hauled her roughly through the open door into the June sunlight. She squinted in the sudden brightness and walked haughty, halt haltingly toward the Salem townhouse, only a block away. As they neared the building, she glanced angrily at it. Inside waited those who would oversee her fate and jeer at her predicament. The glance, according to the guards, caused a nail-studded board to, to wrench from its place within the building and go flying across the room. The bang was heard from outside. Startled, the men led her into the courthouse, nearly dragging her up the stairs to the second floor where her accusers were waiting. Bridget Bishop's past had been one of upheaval. As mentioned earlier in this book, she had broken the town's peace with her tawdry taverns where shuffleboard was played, no doubt, with bets in place. She was abrasive and seductive. Many of her accusers at the trial were men who gave reports of her specter coming to them in the night as they lay in their bedchambers. She blatantly rebuked the usual beauty colors of the Puritan women by wearing a bright red waistcoat. She had been accused of thievery among throughout the, often throughout the years, but until the witchcraft outbreak of 1692, her charges had been old ones, including being accused of witchcraft in 1679. While Bridget was being searched for the witch's marks in Salem Jail, the court was already hearing testimony, testimonies from witnesses who related stories of, 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 bishops, of bishops' actions in the past. Bridget's April 19th examination was brought up again and again as Thomas Putnam Jr., Nathaniel Ingersoll, and Samuel Paris related the torments the girls, were, the girls suffered as the magistrates questioned the witch. Leaning largely on the English law requirement that at least two witnesses had to concur on an event, the men dutifully read off the indictments. From April 19th, stating 
Goody Bishop had tortured, afflicted, pined, consumed, wasted, and tormented Mercy Lewis, Betty Hubbard, and Putnam Jr., Mary Walcott, and Abigail Williams during her inquest a month and a half earlier. Cotton Mather, who was not in attendance at the trial, later described the proceedings from the written documents that are no longer extant. The result was a book called Wonders of the Invisible World. The problem, he said, of the trials was to fix the witchcraft often on the prisoner at the bar. Thanks to his record, we have some idea what happened on June 2nd, as Bridget Bishop faced off with the table flanked by men. They began with the girls who testified the shape of the prisoner did oftentimes very, very grievously pinch them, choke them, bite them, and afflict them, urging them to write their names in a book, which the said specter called ours. They claimed that Bishop's apparition had bragged of killing sundry parsons. Then by her name, Susanna Sheldon, never to be left from the spotlight for long, added a current report that she had witnessed the ver that very day. She said a confrontation had ensued between the specter of Bishop and the ghost of a, of a pair of twins who told her to, who told her to her face that she had not that she had murdered that she had murdered them and setting them into fits where, whereof they, they died. In a side note, Mather conceded that the report was met with much suspicion. Another witness reported that Bridget Spector had picked her up and taken her to a river where it tried to drown her if she did not sign the devil's book. The jury was reminded of the occasion when Abigail Williams had yelled out that Bridget Bishop's ghost had appeared and Jonathan Walcott had thrust his sword at it, tearing its coat. Bishop was accused of sitting at the devil's sacrament in the parsonage meadow and threatening deliverance, and threatening deliverance Hobbs with a whipping of iron rods. On and on the litany of accusations went. All the while, the afflicted girls roared their torments before the startled jury, Mather wrote. There were produced many evidence of other witchcrafts by her perpetrated. Although some of the accusations went back as far as the 1670s, Bridget was charged with stealing money, strange accidents, unusual livestock maladies, the death, of, the death or sickness of children, and her shape or that of an animal appearing to men at night. These all followed some argument with Bishop of a perceived wrong. Reports of finding poppets hidden in a wall of her home with pins stuck in them were laid out before the court. Mather made a note that Bishop could not give a reasonable or tolerable explanation of the poppets. Finally, the women who had searched Bridget reported finding a preternatural pre teat. Bishop was asked what her response was to the charges. The English law did not allow for counsel or an attorney although the girl shouted out that the devil was defending her that day. According to, Matt, according to Mather's writings, she, she was caught in, in gross lying. Seven times as she accosted her accusers and presented her claims of innocence to the old male jury. The testimony had been heard. Chief Justice Stoughton, in a move that mirrored the charge to the jury given by the judge overseeing the trial, Lizzie Borden, instructed the jury not to look for any evidence of innocence, but with much bias told them they were not to mind whether the bodies of the said afflicted were really pinned or, and consumed, as was expressed in the indictment, but whether the said afflicted did not suffer from the accused such afflictions as naturally tended to their being pinned and consumed, wasted, etc. This, said he, is a pinning and consuming in the sense that they were not to mind whether the bodies of the said afflicted were really pinned. Hold it, hold it. Sorry, I see it skipped on me. <laughs> in the sense 
of the law. In other words, you don't need to see evidence of marks left by actual pins or bruises from being choked. If the afflicted tended to show they were being hurt, that was good enough. Cotton Mather did not list how long the jury took to reach its verdict. Bridget Bishop must have known in her heart, especially after hearing all the charges against her and Stoughton's biased, uh, and, and biased words to the jury, that she was doomed. The men came back with their verdict. She was guilty and sentenced to hang. Thomas Newton, the court's acting attorney, felt the weight of the indictment, as did others. This was no longer a dozen crazed witnesses writhing on the floor and, produ and producing stories of incredible tortures by spirits only they could see. A woman was going to hang. Bridget was taken back to jail, where the women searched her again. Judging by the reports of Bishop's temper, it can be supposed that by now she had had enough. She had been found guilty, and only the saving grace of God could prevent her from hanging. While the court was still in session, the magistrates went ahead and took depositions against Rebecca Nurse and John Willard in preparation for their trials. But then something interesting happened. The trial stopped. Had it occurred to the magistrates that most of the evidence presented against the women was decades old, or that it was old, with the exception of the thievery, some dolls found in the wall, and poor conduct charges based on spectral evidence? You don't hang someone for stealing a spoon or running a shuffleboard game not even for the wearing of red or having a foul temper. The day was June 2nd. The next trial would not occur for another 26 days. It didn't stop the repeated search for the witches that had been brought over from Boston prison. The magistrates had not informed the general population of their decision to take a hard look at what they were doing. At 4 o'clock that same day, right after Bridget was, sub was subjected to a second body search, Rebecca Nurse, Elizabeth Proctor, and Susanna Martin were stripped and probed. It was noted that Goody Martin's breasts, which had been full and firm that morning at 10 o'clock, were now old and pendant. Her familiars must have been suckling at her breasts and depleted them. John Proctor and John Willard were similarly searched by the male surgeon. The delay between June 2nd and June 28th was not without its legal entanglements. Indictment after indictment, arrest after arrest was made until the prisons were bursting at the seams. Some prisoners were allowed to stay in jails within their county in an effort to alleviate the crown conditions. Six days after her guilty verdict was read, Bridget Bishop finally left jail for the last time. The reality of what would be hard to imagine as the guards led her to the waiting cart outside the Salem Town Jail. Sheriff George Corwin tied her wrists to the upright cart support and the procession began. That the street was thronged with people to watch the first of the accused head her execution was not reported but assumed. There was no fixed site of execution in Salem Town, as old capital offenses were usually hand handled in Boston, and the executions conducted there. That Bridget Bishop wasn't hauled away to Boston may have been an indicator that the town expected many more hangings in the days to come, and thus, a suitable location may as well be found now. As the noon sun hung high in the June sky, humidity laced the faces and soaked the clothing of those making the trek behind the cart. Bridget was probably taunted with shouts of witch. She may have been pelted with fruit or small rocks as the creaking cart wheels floundered over the rutted roadways. Sheriff Corwin steered his horse to the northwest of town. Marilyn K. Roach, in her book, The Salem Witch Trials, a day-by-day -day chronicle of a community under siege, set the scene of the promenade to the execution site.
Quote, for now, Salem officials chose a spot of common pasture at the edge of the town. Away from the center of things, yet visible, the passers-by, like later condemned witches, British bishop, was transported in a cart flanked by guards and mounted officers in a procession that drew onlookers as it passed from the jail, down prison lane, to the main street. They proceeded southwest of town, where the road angled toward Salem Village in Boston, and the North River bent sharply to run between bedrock hills. A stream flowed from the height on the south, excuse me. A stream flowed from the height on the south into the salt marsh pool that met the riverbed. The crowd headed north, crossing the stream on a causeway and bridge between the pool and the river, shallow now as its waters drained away at too low tide. The procession turned left off the main road to a track to attract a kind of ledge about the salt marsh pool. Several of the afflicted were present, beaten, they said, by old Jacob Spectre leaning on the devil so it could use one of its staves as a club. Even now, as the girls witnessed the, res the result of their hand-fought battle against the devil, they could not resist adding yet more tales of torment. No conscience <clears throat> seems to have weighed upon them that their actions were the cause of a human life being taken. The fact that Bridget Bishop had never met any of them before. The inquest of April 19th meant nothing to them. They marched on behind the cart, perhaps tingling with anticipation of what was to come. Scholars over the years have posited their theories as to whether there was a scaffold constructed for the hanging, or if a ladder was merely placed against a tree for the condemned to be pushed from. As Bridget was the first, and no mention was made in any documents that a gallows had been constructed in the six days between her indictment and execution, this author tends to believe a ladder was placed against the thick branch of one of the trees growing along the crevice. It had to be a place where all could see the results of what happened to those who trifled in witchcraft. Marilyn K. Roach, whose book was just cited, was one of the team of researchers and historians who located what they believed to be the precise location of the hangings. It sits at the forefront of Gallows Hill and is called Proctor's Ledge. More about this will be talked about later. The crowd assembled along the rocky crevice and swelled out in the open ground. Bridges' hands were brought behind her back and a rope tied around her skirt and legs. A hood may have been placed over her head for two reasons. An old suspicion that the evil eye from a witch, especially one about to die, could curse those who gaze, who gaze it fell upon, whose gaze it fell upon. More pragmatically, it was to save those watching the grisly effects of a hanging. Bridget was carried or lifted up several steps of the ladder, far enough that a drop would cause her death and keep her feet from old suspicion that the, oops, sorry, and keep her feet from touching the ground. A noose tied hurriedly to the tree bough was placed around her neck. Witnesses say she proclaimed her innocence to the last. Beverly Minister John Hale was present. Beverly Minister John Hale was present. He had been there at the first outbreak of witchcraft at Reverend Paris's house and was fittingly here today, perhaps to offer a prayer. The crowd looked on with mixed emotions. The small children in attendance were not shielded from the horror about to happen. It was better to instill in them the fear of the devil and reinforce their desire for salvation. Hearts raced as they watched the heaving bosom of the prisoner, waiting for the final moments of life to flash before her. Sheriff Corwin paused and then pushed the, body, the bound body of Bridget Bishop from the rung. After months of hysteria and screaming, the girls were finally silenced. 
The startled crowd watched as the form of Bridget Oliver Bishop convulsed and twisted, swinging from side to side as the tree cr bough creaked beneath her weight. After her feet jerked upwards a few more times, she was still. The afflicted had extracted their pound of flesh. This was real. A body hung before them, turning slowly with the rope. Would this bring them out of the hysteria that had gripped them for more than four months? It is not recorded if Bridget's body was left to dangle in the heat of the day or throughout the human night, as a warning to others. If she followed suit of the others to come, she was eventually cut down and tossed into the crevice of rocks, a scant handful of dirt thrown over her. Sheriff George Corwin appeared before the clerk of court later that day and turned in the first of the written documents reporting the execution's outcome. I have taken the body of the within-named Bridget Bishop and the cause said Bishop to be hanged by the neck until she was dead. Chapter 28, Death and Deliberations The sobering reality of a public hanging did have its effect. Accusations and torturing spirits were silenced in the days following Bridget Bishop's execution. Prisoners huddled in jails awaiting their turn at trial. Okay, prisoners huddled in jail awaiting their turn at trials must have panicked fully in the face of the reality that the news had just provided. The judges may have wished to follow Pontius Pilate's example and symbolically wash the blood from their hands. The laws they had followed to incriminate a witch now bothered many of them, particularly the amount of weight put on spectral evidence. They needed counsel on how to proceed. They needed something more than an antiquated guidelines from a, from a country they had deserted. They needed religious input. A schism had formed among the judges. They argued amongst themselves. One stated that if spectral evidence had not been allowed in Bridget Bishop's trial, she would have hung for no more than the decades of gossip about her, wearing red and running a shuffleboard game. Governor Phipps, still wet behind the ears in his newly appointed post, felt the burden of dealing with ongoing threats of Indian warfare amongst the nearby villages and the problematic scourge of witches sweltering in the prisons of his, of his province. He was away much of the time in late May and early June, dealing with the Indian crisis. He basically decided to hand the whole witch business over to the clergy. Let them tell the court how to proceed. This was, after all, a battle being fought in the invisible world of good and evil. He'd handled the physical issue of bloodshed amidst the colony. The church could handle the witches. He had not long to wait. A large band of, of Wabanaki Indians attacked Wells, Maine, on June 11th, striking both the ships in the harbor and the garrison of terrified villagers. The damage was small as far as lives lost. Thwarted in their attempts to breach the enemy's strongholds, they burned the town and butchered the livestock. One poor soul was captured, and the wrath of the frustrated natives was taken out on him. They butchered him cruelly within the view of those holed up in the garrison. He was cut, castrated, scalped, and tortured. Burning sticks plunged into his wounds. Cotton Mather wrote, They butchered one poor Englishman with all the fury that they would have spent upon them all. The irony of the hanging of one poor soul the day before in Salem Village to satiate the outcry of witchcraft from a dozen distracted villagers may not have been lost on all. On June 15, 1692, with Bridget Bishop's hanging still clean, still clear in their minds, a conference of 12 ministers, including Cotton Mather, gathered to discuss the situation. If some of the imprisoned had been a fly on the wall during the early stages of the meetings, they might have felt some hope for the outcome of the predicament. 
The consensus was that a very critical and exquisite caution was needed. Lest by too much, uh, I'm sorry, credulity of things, I'm sorry, my mouth, uh, received only upon the devil's authority there, be a, do be a door open for long train of miserable consequences. The trials, they advised, must be managed with an exceeding tenderness towards those that may be complained of, especially if they have been persons formerly of a blemished reputation. The latter words would have brought hope, much hope, to the likes of Rebecca Nurse and her sisters Marietti and Sarah Cloyce, all members of the church in good standing. The problem with spectral evidence was hit hard during ministers' gathering. This must be handled with care, they warned, using words almost identical to the declarations of Rebecca Nurse and Susanna Martin. They stated that the demon may assume the shape of the innocent. They hammered in the point that the evidence presented should be certainly more considerable than barely the accused person being represented by a specter unto, unto the afflicted. The ministers next addressed the touch test, where the afflicted were asked to touch the accused. If their afflictions immediately stopped, then the person was labeled a witch, as it demonstrated the, the curse had left the victim and gone, gone back into the accused. This proof, too, was problematic and was discredited as no fallible evidence and frequently liable to be abused by the devil's legermane. The document the clergyman drafted was labeled the return of several ministers. After casting dispersion on the use of spectral evidence and the touch test, which was ex which the exclusion of would have saved many from the gallows, they capitulated by praising the magistrate's structural dealing with the proceedings thus far. Nevertheless, they said, we cannot but humbly recommend unto the government the speedy and vigorous prosecution of such as have rendered themselves obnoxious according to the directions given in the laws of God and the wholesome statutes of the English nation for the detection of witchcraft. It was an ambiguous offering. That in effect was worthless. Perhaps the weight of deciding the infrastructure of the trials was too odious for the ministers to take upon themselves. Out of fear of, of, of retribution from man or God, they may have retreated with this basic offering that giveth or taketh the way. It was handed over to the magistrates, who probably deferred to William Stoughton for the final say in the matter. Robert Califf summed up the probable relief of the judicial body by saying, return of the several ministers gave as great or greater encouragement to proceed in these dark methods than cautions against them. Astonishingly, the validity of the girl's afflictions was never called into question. Not even a hint that perhaps something other than witchcraft could be distracting these teenagers, children, and a few unstable adults. Even when two of the afflicted confessed that it had been for sport, or that it came from distraction and distemper, the trials went on. Sarah Churchill had even confessed to Sarah Ingersoll that it was all faked. It was too much for one of the magistrates. Judge Nathaniel Salenstall could no longer condone the proceedings. He had witnessed a trial and execution in which he had participated. He did not believe the antics of the afflicted that he witnessed, nor the spectral evidence that was being given so much credence. One man among many who all seemed been on a mission of cleansing the community of perceived demons. His voice was as one crying in the wilderness. He resigned his magistrate and withdrew to his home in Haverhill, where it was rumored he found solace in drink. His seat was replaced by a familiar face, Judge Jonathan Corwin.
On June 16th, the prosecution of witches claimed another victim, not by hanging, but by the toll imprisonment took. Roger Toothaker, the self-proclaimed doctor and healer, died in Boston prison. He was 58 years old. The coroner, Edward Wiley's, called, called in no less than 24 men to examine Roger's body. It seemed excessive, and the fact that one of the men, Benjamin Walker, questioned the other prisoners that were there when Toothaker died makes one wonder if there was some concern that he had perished due to some kind of persecution from his fellow inmates or guards. Or perhaps they were looking for any spectral visitors that may have tormented the man. The verdict was he came to his end by a natural death. He had been in jail since May 18th. After his arrest, all his female relatives were accused as witches as well. His wife Mary, his eight-year-old daughter Margaret, his eldest daughter Martha, and his wife's youngest sister Martha Ellen Carrier, who was dubbed the Queen of Hell. Roger had several strikes against him. He had moved to Salem and set up his own practice, declaring himself a doctor in a territory heretofore dominated by Dr. William Griggs, the same doctor believed to be called by Samuel Paris at the witchcraft outbreak to inspect his niece and daughter. It was Griggs' niece, Elizabeth Hubbard, and her two closest friends, Ann Putnam Jr. and Mary Walcott, who originally accused Toothaker. Whether it was his perceived competition with Griggs or the fact that he had once bragged of teaching his daughter Martha how to kill a witch, it was enough to send him to prison. Counting Sarah Osborne and Sarah Good's baby, both of whom died in prison, along with the hanging of Bridget Bishop. The girls could chalk up four deaths in their, in their war on witchcraft. The strange lull in spirit sightings following Bridget Bishop's death slowly began to dissipate. It started with Putnam, Constable Jonathan Putnam, who lived <clears throat> in the northern region of Salem Village, not far from several of the accused witches, Sarah Coyce, Daniel Andrews, and some of the Jacobs. On June 18th, eight days after the first hanging, he suddenly fell ill. Mercy Lewis was asked to come and look into the visible world for signs of specter tormenting the man. Beneath a full moon, Mercy made her way to Putnam's home. Samuel Paris and John Putnam Jr. had arrived to watch the proceedings. Oddly, the minute Mercy came into the house, she was suddenly unable to speak. Bewildered at her condition, the men finally settled on a solution. They told her to hold up her hand if she saw specters afflicting the constable. Mercy looked at the man and finally raised her hand. She suddenly went into a trance before, de before declaring it was the shapes of Rebecca Nurse, and Martha Carrier torturing Putnam. That same day in Boston, accused witches Lydia and Sarah Dustin were transferred via car to the Cambridge prison closer to their home in Middlesex. Others, not so lucky, were auspiciously taken from Boston to Salem Jail, a trip that could only mean they were up next for, for a trial. George Burroughs, Martha and Giles Corey, George Jacob Sr., and Puttyter, Sarah Cloyce, Sarah Wiles, Susanna Root, and Dorcas Horv packed the wooden cart and were, hauled, and were hauled along the town streets to the jail. Merchants and villagers alike stopped to watch the witches trek. Had Bishop's hanging softened the spectators' gaze or enhanced the fear of hatred fueled by the, scout, the scourge of the evil they perceived inflicting the Puritan colony? The females accused of witchcraft were not the only ones to be searched for witches' marks. In readiness for the next set of trials, Marshal George Herrick, Constable Joseph Neal, and jailer William Downton stood, stood old George Jacob Sr. up upon his walking sticks and looked for witches' marks. They found a strange excrescence, a quarter of an inch in size, on his right shoulder. They probed it with a pin, but nothing came out. This was a problem. 
They found two more on his right hip and inside his right cheek. The devil was thought to often hide teats or marks in places not obvious at first glance. Under an eyelid, inside the mouth, and a person's secret places. It was one of the reasons the prisoners were, were subjected to thorough and, and degrading searches of their persons. A committee of seven men next turned their attention to George Burroughs. Perhaps disappointingly, they found nothing. As the prisoners awaited their fate, some of their families saw to it that they had a few creature comforts from home. If you could afford it, you were allowed to bring some provisions to the witches, which eased the cost, the cost of the jailer's fe feverish tabulations. Dorcas Hoare was one such prisoner, blessed with family, who were trying to bring her some sense of normalcy and comfort. Her grandson, John Lovett, came with fresh clothes and some decent food. How the other prisoners must have coveted these gifts from home. The spectral attacks resume. Like a barometer <clears throat> registering the signs of an impending storm, the ensuing trial set the tides and winds of spectral gossip into high gear. The devil, perched high on a hill in Salem Village, guided his playing pieces across an antiquated map as he maneuvered each to play in part in the defeat of a village's righteousness. The shadow of Bridget Bishop's noose fell across the ponds and bishop, knights and castles that had all played their role so well. One hanging had only whetted the appetites of those thirsting for death. The next move would require several ropes tied about the bow at one time. With a smile, he pushed the pawns across the board toward the castle that represented the city court. Je Jemima Ray, an 11-year-old from Salem Village, cried out that the specters of Rebecca Nurse and Sarah Cloyce were torturing her, along with Mary Black. Sarah was a neighbor. And it was she, the young girl, targeted in her seven consecutive seizures. You cannot do it alone, and you brought this woman to help you? Why do you bring her? She was never complained of. She confessed that it was Sarah Cloyce tormenting her, and the innocent woman was Mary Black. Susanna Sheldon, one of Satan's most obliging pawns, went into overdrive with her afflictions only days before the next court of Oyer and Terminer was to be convened. While working at William Shaw's in Salem Town, Susanna surprised visiting neighbors when she was found with her hands bound tightly with cord. Witnesses said the cord was so tight that they had to cut, cut it away. Shel Sheldon said it was the specter of Goody Dustin Specter. It is curious that Sheldon accuses Linda Dustin, who had just been transferred only a few days prior to this, to Cambridge Jail. Did the girls see the transfer as a sign that Dustin may be wiggling out of the noose? The perceived guilty were brought to Salem Jail, not farther away in Cambridge. Even more horrifying than Susan's bound hands and the convulsions that followed were the reports that she was found hanging from a hook close to death. The hook hanging happened on four different occasions. She accused Goody Destin of two of the attacks and two on Goody Good. More strange occurrences were reported along the line of, of teleportation or psychokinesis, for a broom suddenly appeared in an apple tree and a shirt and milk tub turned up in the woods. Four days later, only two days before the court would resume trying witches, Susanna was once again found by neighbors, supposedly at Shaw's farm, choking on the barren floor. Her head had been crammed behind a chest, and her hands bound tightly with a wheel band. As the adults cut away this band, she cried that it was Sarah Good who had done it. John Proctor's specter came from his jail cell and tormented Abigail Hobbs. He promised she would not hang if she would touch the book and take a poppet and thorn he brought with him, with which to torture Ann Putnam Jr. It seems Hobbs wasn't safe, 
even in prison, and the persecutions of the witches. Sarah Bibber accused the ghost of Rebecca Nurse for tormenting her, while Elizabeth Booth was attacked by Elizabeth Proctor Spectral. Meanwhile, in Andover, a town that would claim more witches than any other, people were beginning to cry out. 30-year-old Timothy Swan was being attacked at his father's home by an entire coven of witches. While most of the attackers were women, Toothaker, Post, Lacey, Foster, and others, Martha Carrier recruited her sons, as well as her daughter, and Richard Carrier, whose specters were all said to torment Swan grievously. Carrier burned Swan with a tobacco pipe and stabbed his knee with a red-hot iron spindle. It was the dreaded dark-haired man in the tall crown, in the tall crown hat, that was seen bearing the spindle to facilitate the torture. Shaw said the witches used puppets as well to carry out their afflictions from a safe distance. Reverend Samuel Paris had kept a low profile throughout the chaos. He still performed his duties as minister and tried to bring some sense of comfort to the congregation that was dwindling in numbers. Some were in prison, some were family members on, of those in prison, and others were wrestling with their own consciousness over the whole witchcraft mess. Besides, some innocent people had been cried out upon while attending church. Was it safe to be there in case of one of the afflicted's wandering gazes fell upon you and found disfavor? Nevertheless, Paris stood before the fearful congregation nine days before the next scheduled court hearing and claimed that they had not been abandoned in their hardships, for he is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, which comforteth us all in our, in our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any affliction. The weathered faces looking up at him saw a man serving a dual purpose. On the Sabbath and certain lecture days, he was their spiritual leader and advisor. On trial days, he was the scribe furiously taking down the notes or signing depositions that would condemn their neighbors and family members to the gallows. Who was he really? And whose side was he on? The voice of reason silenced. Three days before the court of lawyer and terminer began, brought the next. <clears throat> sorry about that. Three days before the court of lawyer and terminer brought brought about the next sacrificial lambs, one man took a stand against the legal proceedings he had witnessed so far. He was a Baptist minister, something that may have been against him to begin with. William Milborn made out two petitions and presented them to, to Governor Phipps, a man Milborn had served with before, under Governor Andros's reign. Quote, several others had signed the petitions, and Milburn handed him to handed them to the council with hopes of making some difference in the upcoming trials. Quote, a woeful a woeful chain of consequences will undoubtedly follow. It read in regards to the use of spectral evidence that was seen as a means to condemn the innocent. We therefore request that the validity of spectra of spectral testimony may be weighed in the balance of our grace and solid judgments. It being the womb that hath brought forth and inexplicable damage and misery to this province, province and ordered by your votes, no more credence be given thereto than the word of God alloweth. Salt and Saul had said as much as his reason for resigning from the court. The return of several ministers had warned of it before doing an about face and pretty much rendering their opinion moot. Many of the council had wrestled with their own conscious, consciences but in the end, they validated the course they had chosen. They took offense. Sorry, they took offense. I'm losing it. I am tired. They took offense at Melbourne's meddling, 
and offering insight at his very high reflections upon the administration of public justice. Governor Phipps had an arrest warrant drawn up against Melbourne for his scandalous and sedacious paper. He was fined 200 pound bond and had to post two sureties that he would appear in court to answer to his felonies. If he could not do both, he would sit in prison until the Superior Court convened at no apparent scheduled date. Even increased Mather, fresh from his return to Massachusetts with the Charter, sat with several of his hardware constituents in the college library and discussed the sticky issue. Quote, whether the devil may not sometimes have a permission to represent an innocent person as tormenting, as tormenting such as are under diabolical molestations. They had weighed in with the return of several ministers, but may be regretting their, their, their facilitation of the document. After the fury, after the fury metered out against Melbourne's latest supplication, they decided to sit on it for now. But time had run out. The day following their discourse, the next session, the court of order and terminer took center stage in Salem Town. The lives of many would hang in the balance of the trial's outcome. Depositions would be read, the afflicted given free reign, with the accused getting only a breath of a chance to contest the charges against them. In the stagnant heat of that June night, only the, 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 only the rhythmic sound of the crickets bound both the villagers sweltering in their bedsheets with those of the accused stirring fearfully on their straw mats in Salem Jail. Crickets, a summer's night tune that brought a sense of continuity. The season would always be filled with such night sounds as these. But to Rebecca Nurse, Sarah Good, Elizabeth Howe, Susanna Martin, Sarah Wilds, and others, it was only a reminder that this might be their last summer. It might even be their last night. All right, guys, I'm stopping there. Thank you for coming tonight. <clears throat> I said I know it's late. I apologize for late, for this being so late tonight. But uh, thank you so much, and I really appreciate it. If you like what you heard, share it with five people. If you hated what you heard, share it with five people anyway. Equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. And tomorrow, just make note, tomorrow uh, the show will be live at 11 a.m. Pacific. Edward Tick is with us. And Ed, uh, Professor Edward Tick is with us. And he will be talking about PTSD and how he has studied Greek influences and Greek healing and different things like that that he, that, that he incorporates into his work with, with people that have PTSD and other issues. So that's going to be tomorrow afternoon, early afternoon, 11 a.m. Pacific. Anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming, and I'm going to cut out right now. Have a great rest of your night. Get some sleep. See you at 11 o'clock tomorrow. Bye.